Well, good evening, everybody. Y'all doing all right? Hey, you are the brave souls that came out on this rainy, rainy day. It's cold, so I'm so glad to see you. It's good to be God's people together, amen? Amen. Hey, would you do me a favor? Would you turn to the book of Matthew? That's in the second half of that Bible in front of you. If you forgot a Bible, that's okay. I forgot mine too, so we'll see how it goes. I'm just kidding, but I did forget my Bible. Please forgive me. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 27 here in just a moment. As Pastor Kathy mentioned earlier, we have been on a journey. We've been on a journey together with Jesus on his way to the cross. And each week, we've been looking at the place we find Jesus in the story. Jesus, who is denied betrayed, mocked, condemned, and this evening we're going to look at Jesus who was crucified. And I want to give you a warning that we don't have a lot of practical things in our message this evening like I did last week, nor do we have a lot of fun stories like we've had a couple weeks ago. We're going to look intently at the crucified Christ And we're going to try to weave together the threads that Matthew has woven in this section of the gospel reading we'll look at in just a moment. But we're finding Jesus in the story. And not only that, we're going to be exploring where our world is in the story. Because our world has a way of doing to Jesus what they can also do to us. They can mock us condemn us, betray us, deny us. But often it's easier to talk about them out there. We've also been pointing the finger at our own hearts, and we've been exploring the ways in which we find ourselves in the story too. That's our third key question we've been looking at. And then finally, we're going to explore where is our hope. That's what we've been doing each week. And that's what we're going to be doing this evening and Lord willing throughout the week as you're invited to follow the journey yourself through the stations of the cross. It's a wonderful, immersive, uh, self-guided prayer experience. It's in English and Spanish. We'll have maybe 200 of our friends and neighbors from Freeman Heights and the community walk through themselves this journey that we've been on in the season of Lent. Robin has sculpted and put together these, so shout out to Robin. You're awesome. You're amazing. She just got a dab. She is rocking and rolling. We also want to invite you to Good Friday as we look again with our brothers and sisters at Freeman Heights, the crucifixion, and then finally we will celebrate the resurrection, Lord willing, next Sunday together. So as we get going, I told you tonight we're going to look at the cross, And I've been thinking this season of an interaction I shared with you recently of a woman I met in Montreal. Several years ago, Amy and I went with a group of young adults our first time to this wonderful, amazing city of Montreal. How many of y'all have been to Montreal? Yeah, awesome. I know Bill and Sherry have. They're not here this evening, but it's just got this amazing European feel. Of course, it has that European feel because it's a French-Canadian town. And along with all the French influences comes the French Catholic influence in this city of Montreal. And so Montreal is famous for loads and loads of these big, beautiful, gorgeous cathedrals. But Montreal is also famous 
for these big, beautiful, gorgeous cathedrals being pretty much empty. Because the reality is, unfortunately, that the Catholic Church a few generations ago had really kind of made some missteps, and because of some secrecy and some abuses, people left the church in droves in the city of Montreal. So when Amy and I were there with this team of people working with another church downtown, we were in a park just outside of one of these big, beautiful cathedrals, and we met this woman that I think also articulated another reason why they've left the church. Because after a generation of stepping outside of the faith and these cathedrals, she began to realize how really strange we Christians are. And she put it to us this way, I just can't understand how you can walk into those buildings week in, week out, and you can see right there, dead center, the cross with that sad man with his eyes turned down and his head drooping and the gory nails and the blood and the wound on his side and to put it so front and center, I can never imagine how you could make that the focus of your life, much less your Sunday. She said, it's ugly, it's gothic, and why would I want anything to do with that? And I remember sitting there in Montreal, having gone from Texas there to talk to people about Jesus, to encourage this church, and I thought, oh man, she's kind of right. And I just remember thinking, what a strange symbol of our faith. But as we follow Jesus on his journey, we can't escape the central event of the crucifixion. Nor should we escape the central event of the crucifixion. But this week, I want you to understand that we can't understand the cross without the resurrection. And we can't really understand the resurrection without the cross. And so this evening, I hope that we can put the cross central so that next week we can put the resurrection central in order that we can understand them together and why this is the focus that we should be focusing on. You with me? So let's look at Matthew. Let's try to weave together all of these dense threads as we explore our questions together. You good? You with me? All right, we going for it. Y'all ready? So let's look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 35. We've been on this story thus far. Let's pick it up. When they, that is the Roman soldiers, had crucified him, They divided up his clothes by casting lots. So at the foot of the cross, Jesus doesn't have some people to just bequeath his riches to. It's the soldiers that get first dibs. And then we see that the soldiers hang around to keep watch over Jesus on the cross. And then above his head, these soldiers place the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were also crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, now the chief priests, 
and the teachers of the law and the elders, read, everybody in the religious system mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, so let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For this guy said, I am the son of God. And then in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. You can write down Amos 8, 9. We don't have all the time to get at all of these threads, but there's even this sense in which the earth realizes the catastrophe of what we are all about to do. And then it says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Psalm 22 is the phrase, the poem that he's referencing and you could place Psalm 22 side by side in our reading this evening. And you can see the places that mirror what we've experienced. Psalm 22, 6, 8 says, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. You even see where it says, My mouth is dry in Psalm twenty-two fifteen. You see in Psalm twenty-two eighteen, They divide my clothes among them. Jesus quotes a psalm that is mirroring the pain and the alienation he's feeling. But we ain't got time for all that. We are going to talk about that phrase there. But we've got to understand when we approach the cross, we are weaving together all of these threads as the climax of God's incredible rescue that no one expected. So when Jesus finally cries out, what he cried out means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when some of those standing there heard this, they said, oh, he's calling Elijah. So immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And then the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Now I want to pause there again and say it's a misunderstanding because in the Hebrew language when he's saying Eli, Eli, or even in the Aramaic language, it sounds like Elijah. And so they're thinking, oh dude, is Elijah about to show up and save this man? Because some people believe that Elijah was like a superman that would come and help some rabbis. Other people believed that Elijah was going to show up before God did. So they're like, wait a minute, let's play this out, y'all. Maybe Elijah's going to show up. What they didn't understand is what we'll talk about in a moment, that he was crying out this poem, my God, my God. So we continue in Matthew's threads. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. So where is Jesus in the story? I need to remind you again of what we remind ourselves every year, and that is that we cannot fully grasp the despair and confusion and depression that Jesus' followers felt that Friday evening. I gotta tell you, 
that even though Jesus had told them, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and Rome and the religious leaders and everybody is gonna be done with what I'm doing and they're going to kill me for it, but God will raise me on the third day. Even though Jesus had been saying that, they didn't get it. We need to understand that nobody was walking around Friday saying, woo, yeah, he did it. Ooh, he was crucified, y'all. You better watch out, Satan. Tell the devil, not today. No, no, no. We talk about this every Easter. They were freaked out. You see this when Jesus is walking alongside the disciples away from Jerusalem, kicking the rocks down the road, saying, yeah, we thought he was the king, man. We cannot fully grasp the desperation on Friday. All his friends had bailed on him. The women, who were the strong ones around the cross, caring for his body, were still weeping. We cannot fully understand because we've got the whole New Testament talking about the victory of the cross. We've got movies. We've got books. We've got 2,000 years. We can't fully understand this. But you need to understand they had no idea how in the world God would save the world. Because everything that Jesus said and did was about bringing God's kingdom. And God's kingdom was supposed to dismantle and uproot all of the violence and the hate and the darkness and the enslavement of not just the sins, we've sung about sin a lot, not just the sins that we do, but the sins that's just in the air we breathe. Guys, Jesus wasn't the first and he wasn't the last criminal they thought, they thought to be crucified. This is what we love to do. We love to make hell on earth, but you need to understand that everything Jesus said and did was about bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You need to understand that on his way to the cross, what Jesus was doing with every word that he spoke, with every teaching that he taught, it wasn't about pray a prayer and go to heaven when you die. What it was about was that God's kingdom, God's heaven, was invading earth. And it's invading your heart. And when it invades your heart, it transforms you from the inside out. And then you can begin to do things like loving your enemies. And when you love your enemies, you stop crucifying and condemning and betraying. And when you start loving them, it transforms their heart. And every word he spoke was little grenades being launched in people's hearts to cultivate this imagination that perhaps there is a new and better way and it leads to life and not violence and death. And then, just to make sure we got it, everything that Jesus did in his actions, if every healing, he's undoing and dismantling the brokenness and sin in the world that destroys our bodies. Let no one say that God is directly responsible for every horrible thing and every disease when Jesus himself was all about undoing it. Everything that Jesus did, every person he touched that was a outcast, the lost, the, leaf, the left out, the lonely, was about inviting them in and healing them socially, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, and saying there's a seat at the table in God's kingdom for you. Everything Jesus declared, everything Jesus demonstrated. John will say the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus exercised a lot of demons. Jesus kicked out 
the darkness that we let in. And Jesus is still doing that. When we let in the whispers that say you are not good enough, you are not loved enough, you are nothing, and then you begin to embody that and you harm yourself and you let drugs and all of these things just numb the pain that you keep feeding this. When Jesus touches these people, the evil flees so that the light can begin to come in and it's heaven invading earth. But it wasn't just what he said. It wasn't just what he did. He embodied in his very person, hear me, God's kingdom. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. What does Jesus reveal? He reveals God. Guys, what does God look like? Jesus. To the degree that your God doesn't look like Jesus, I wonder if you've got the full picture of who God is. Because in Hebrews, he said, we've heard the whispers and seen the shadows, but God spoke in his son, and he's the exact image and representation of God the Father. He embodied God's reign on earth. So, on his journey to the cross, the surprising death of Jesus seemed so uncharacteristic. How could God save the world like this? Everything was about this kingdom invading and dismantling. And every time he would speak and touch and embody and welcome people in, what was happening was nothing short of salvation, okay? When Jesus spoke of salvation, he was speaking of the kingdom of God. It was not just forgiveness of sins, although it entailed that. Hear me. Salvation at its most basic level is this. Salvation is living with God in his kingdom by trusting God's king. Salvation is living with God in his kingdom by trusting God's king. So when Jesus is advancing toward Jerusalem, telling people, I'm going to save the world by sacrifice, but God's going to get my back, They say, yeah, right, dude, because we're looking around and we see all these people that were healed and delivered and they're hearing a new way of living and life and we've got this whole party that is following Jesus on their way to the capital city. Think about every other army in this world that we have seen. You've got Hitler, you've got the guerrilla warfare in Central and South America, you've got the bands of people trying to disrupt African governments, and every village, every town, what do they leave in their wake? Destruction, and prisoners, and violence, and death. And then Jesus begins to show the world a new kingdom. And he invites all of these people. And in every town and in every village, we see an army of people who are laying down their swords and not taking people captive, but releasing them in freedom. And then we see not the violation of women, but the elevation of women to come along and support the mission and to not be objects and property. And we see them at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, and we don't see them raped and murdered and set aside because this king and this kingdom is different. And where there is death, Jesus touches little girls and raises them up in new life. And so the degree to which... We give our allegiance to any kingdom that doesn't look like that 
is a degree to which we're not following Jesus as the army advancing against the kingdoms of death and darkness. And this is not just some pie-in-the-sky revolutionary talk. We advance the kingdom of God by breaking bread with people of different colors, orientations, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. And we say, you're welcome at the table. If Jesus will welcome you, let's welcome you. And we speak words of resurrection and life and healing and freedom, not judgment, condemnation. That's when the kingdom of God begins to take root and transform our city. When Jesus turned to his followers as his army and said, now when I go and give you my spirit and myself, you keep meeting as outposts of the kingdom of God here, there, and everywhere, and we call it church. And it's so much more than listening to a man or woman on this stage preaching a sermon. And it's so much more than even doing nice things at the rock, like giving out clothes and sharing meals and coats and uniforms, which you guys do so wonderfully and beautifully. It has to be like Jesus in embodying and declaring and demonstrating this kingdom. And here's the trick. So often we thought that when God would save the world, it was something that would happen then, but what the cross and the resurrection has done is drug it all the way forward into the mess and the darkness and plant a stake in the ground that says God's kingdom is for you now. And he's thrown open his arms wide and invited everyone in. I love the way one of our favorite preachers, Bruxy Cavey, tells it. And he spoke to this when we were in D.C. a couple weeks ago. Amy, Toby, Jason, Becky, Kathy, Sid, and myself. We've heard him say this again, but it bears repeating because we're talking about the kingdom so much. I want you to take your left arm and I want you to do it like this, okay? I'm about to teach you an army salute. I'm just kidding. We're done talking about armies. I want you to imagine that your birthday is right here in your little elbow. You see baby you right there on your elbow? And I want you to imagine that this is the span of your life chronologically somewhere about here. I mean, depending on how optimistic you are, you're, you can plot yourself. Because the end of your life is represented by the middle finger, the very tip right there. Okay? Some of you that got short arms, I'm sorry, but that's your life. <laughs> and we've been led to believe that the cross is less about the kingdom and more about mm, just getting us off the rock and into heaven. But Bruxy says, no, 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 every other spiritual kind of place will try to work out this idea that when your physical life ends, there is a hope that it will continue on. So take your right arm and touch the tips of your fingers and understand that for millennia, humans have hoped and wondered and wanted life to continue on, to give us a new arm to continue living. But I'm here to tell you what the cross and the resurrection has done by dragging and placing itself in human history has taken that right arm of eternal life and dropped it squarely in the midst of your life today when you say yes to Jesus as king. Would you put your left arm up 
And if you have said, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, I trust in you, would you take that right arm and understand that your eternal life starts right now? And that the goal that Jesus was moving toward was not that we would leave this place, but that heaven would come and invade our space. This is the good news. And the cross is what wrestled the wake of sin and death and violence away from the kingdoms of this world. So we have a whole group of people living with arms like this. And they make their way to the capital city. And then they lay their palms down because they've trusted this king. They lay their blankets down. And this is a king not on a war horse but on a colt. And we're welcoming him in. And they say what? Hosanna. Y'all thought I was going to start singing Jesus Christ Superstar because if you're a betting man, ever since I've been in this church, I have referenced Jesus Christ Superstar. But I'm not. You lose your bet. But there's an awesome song where they sing Hosanna. I know it's in my head right now, Toby. They sing Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Save us, oh God. Now, I think I've preached wrongly when I've said this crowd that says Hosanna on Palm Sunday has a real change of heart when the tension escalates and elevates, when Jesus starts to talk about destroying the temple and being God's king. And then by Friday, they're like, I'm over it, crucify him. I think what we saw is the army that is advanced with Jesus, welcoming him to say, save us, O God, from all these villages and towns that he's moved his way through. But once we get to Jerusalem, it's like they run up into a brick wall. And isn't this so true of us? Everything is so hunky-dory and beautiful. When we're worshiping, we're in community. Everything makes sense. And then we hit that one wall. And we have this cognitive dissonance where all of a sudden, does this faith actually work? Does this actually make sense in this broken relationship? Does this make sense in this broken body? Does this make sense in this broken town and structure? Does this faith work? And they run up against the brick wall that is the political superpower against him and the religious superpower against him saying, you've got to reconsider who this son of God is. And they run up against all the crowd mentality of saying, we have no category for this king, so let's be done with him and kill him. And I think what happens is you run into the crowd on Friday that are the established people that say, I like my life just the way it is. Thank you very much. Crucify him. He's not my king. So I think what we see in between Palm Sunday is a lot of people like us that are really excited about it, but when push comes to shove, we bail. And we step away. And can you blame them? Because Matthew paints a picture for us where our world is in the story is throwing everything they have at Jesus. And the taunts that Matthew records are there for two reasons at least. The first is to show us how the world thinks of our king. And the second is for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, would we hear in their taunts the irony of how this king is going to save the world. 
So quickly, I want to move through in our second key question, where our world is in the story, the ways in which their taunts are ironic for those with eyes to see. Y'all read the Jesus, the king of the Jews. The Romans put this charge up there as a sign to all these other would-be kings. And then they got to guard the body because y'all think about it. If that's your king and you're one of those armies that's trying to wreck shop in Jerusalem, you're going to try to get your man off the cross, yes? It's going to be like pretty painful, but you'd hope he'd survive and live to fight another day. So they're guarding him. But the irony is, This so-called king of the Jews really is king, except he's being enthroned on a cross. Now, the second taunt, you see all the religious establishments saying, nope, 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 nope. And they say, this dude said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. Y'all have got to understand that the temple was like the symbol of their faith, their history, and God's activity And the temple is where heaven and earth met. You wanted to go see God in the Jewish era, you've got to go to the temple. Now, there is no temple currently, and there won't be a temple only a few years after Jesus is crucified. So what he's talking about is, my temple is my body, it will be destroyed, and it will be raised up again on the third day. Jesus, what are you talking about? Perhaps the place where heaven and earth meets is not the temple. It's where? You guys know this, have heard this if you've been around this church. It's in Jesus. You want to really trip you out? Look around at each other. In this gathered space in Jesus' body is where heaven and earth meets. And you thought we were just doing church. There is some mystery and irony here that Jesus is speaking of himself as the place where heaven and earth meet. That was the crowds hurling insults at him. And I, I misspoke earlier. The religious elites were the ones that said, he said he was God's agent, the son of God. And they're kind of throwing back, ironically, what we mentioned in Psalm 22 earlier at his face. Psalm 22 is about this righteous man that was alienated, but the end and the happy ending of Psalm 22 is that if he's really God's righteous person, he's going to be saved. And they say, man, you saved all these people. If God is really your man, if he's really like this with you, he's going to rescue you. But here's the irony. It is not in spite of, it is because He is the Son of God that he will not come down from the cross. Do you see this? Matthew is weaving together all of this for those of us with eyes to see and ears to hear in confusion. How could God's king be killed? He says, no, it's because God's king that he chose to be killed instead of to kill. Because every other king tried to do what every other army did. Jesus will save a suffering and dying world through suffering and dying so that he can forgive us and give us new life. Back to our friend in Montreal, looking at the ugliness of the cross. I was there with her in that space. Having grown up the first part of my life in a church that had a crucifix and had the vestments and the, and the, 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 the candles and all of these things, 
But then moving into my young adult life in a church that had the empty cross, I was feeling that with her. And so I remember it was a couple weeks after that meeting that I went to a Catholic church that Pastor Bud and Pastor Kathy and I now have our meetings and we pray uh, there. And I remember looking at their crucifix and seeing the blood and the nails and not unlike these things. And it was as if at that moment, finally, all of these ugliness, all of the taunts, all of these threads began for me like a magic eye. Y'all remember those magic eyes? the books that would make my nose bleed because I was staring at it too long, those books with the images that if you would look at it and behold it, all of a sudden what would happen? The image begins to pop out. There's this hidden image of beauty behind all of this chaos. And I remember looking at that cross and seeing perhaps Jesus is here Not to shed his blood, just to buy God's forgiveness because God was angry and needed to take his anger out on his son. Perhaps, as Brian Zahn said, Jesus did not shed his blood to buy God's forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood to embody God's forgiveness. Can you hear me? Here's what I need to tell you. You're going to hear that God was angry, so angry, that he needed to take all of his anger out and whip his son so that he could finally cool out and love us. And you're going to hear more and more that what it looked like to forgive us was to have some kind of transaction in which we owed so much, and there's a degree that's true of that. But where God is in this is like the father that Jesus talked about when he told the story of these lost children that owed their father everything he had given him. And they went out and they forgot him. They flipped him off and said, forget this. And they blew everything and squandered everything that God had given him. And then they finally realize how long they've gone and how much they've blown it. And the story that Jesus tells is of this prodigal son that comes back and as soon as he approaches the father, he lashes himself and talks about how wretched he is and horrible he is and the father is so steaming mad angry that he goes back to the barn and he grabs one of his servants and he beats the tar out of him so he could get it all out of his system so that he can then come back and begrudgingly say, okay, son, you can come. Is that the story that Jesus told? I know I'm stepping on some toes here, but I want to be faithful to what I've seen and what so many see in the New Testament. And that is of this father that is reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, not counting their sins against them. The father looking to the horizon, and you can imagine, and it's not a stretch in Jesus' story to say, maybe he'll come today. Maybe she'll come today. Oh, she's been gone so long. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll realize that life is in me and not in those things. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give everything and keep my arms open wide and trust that maybe they'll hear my invitation and sense my working, and they'll come back and find a beloved father calling them beloved children child. This is the good news. The cross was not some medieval torture chamber. This is the revelation of who God has always been. 
This is the revelation of who God has always been. Was it hard for Jesus to say, Father, forgive them? I believe it was the most natural thing for Jesus to do that he's ever done. I believe that Jesus absorbed all of our darkness, everything we owed him, and he paid it all when he turned the other cheek and said, forgive them. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? This is why the cross has saved the world. If we would look at this, this is where we are in the story. If we would look at the cross and see Jesus for who he says he is, who the gospels and the good news and Paul and John and Peter and every single person, if we would behold the cross, it begins to transform our hearts and we begin to see God for who he is as a loving father whose default disposition to you is that of unwavering, unshakable love. And the invitation has gone out to the world and the only thing that is preventing you from life is you choosing to run back home. This is how the cross saved the world. This is how the cross saved the world. And the how matters because Jesus, and this is where we are in this story, felt the pain of the prodigal on the cross. And the father felt the pain of one who has lost his children on the cross. I don't presume to know what this means theologically when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe that they have separated father, son, and the Trinity, but I do believe that Jesus experienced some alienation we can't even touch with a 10-foot pole. I can't begin to map all this out biblically. I don't want to rush to the happy ending of Psalm 22 and say, see, it's all good. But I will say this. We can see when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can see a God who understands a people who feel abandoned and forsaken. We talk about our church, in our church, when we talk about the Psalms, the Psalms are the cries of human heart that remind us two things. You are not alone, and God is not done. And when Jesus quotes the Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in solidarity with all of us who have gone to the far country, we've blown it, we've screwed up, we've made a wreck of our lives, and we feel what Jesus felt. Surely God hates me. Surely God doesn't want me. And in that moment, what God was doing was reconciling the world to himself on his tortured and crucified son. God has felt it. He has been there. He's absorbed it. And he's moved us into new life if we trust as king. So I'll close with this, and where is our hope? If salvation is life in God's kingdom by trusting God's king, we still have the invitation to run home. And when I've been thinking about this, I'm thinking of a story that N.T. Wright told of a friend who embodied what I've been trying to get at and trying to weave together these threads of this improbable, how in the world did this save the world? And he tells a story of his friend who is a spelunker. Y'all know what spelunking is? I just love to say that. I know you know what spelunking is. It's the cave exploring, right? This is amazing. Who in their right mind would ever do this? 
but Tom Wright's friend was a spelunker. And he tells the story of how he had this whole gaggle of adventurers that wanted to go through this cave system that had not yet been mapped. Sign me up, right? No. So everything is hunky-dory, and they're moving and grooving, just walking through the caves. Y'all been to inner space caverns and natural bridge caverns. When they turn off the lights, it gets pretty spooky, but everything was still cool. They're spelunkers, after all. And then they get to this point at the deepest part of this cave. And it's one of those spaces that is that really tight thing where you've got to go one at a time and you've got to wiggle your way through. And to make it worse, he says, there was water that you had to submerge yourself in. And to make it even worse, that on the other side was the section that had not yet been mapped. So the reason he's telling Tom Wright the story and the reason that Tom Wright is retelling it in light of the cross is because you can imagine the conversations that started to spring up. Oh, are you serious? I came out here for an adventure, a good time this weekend, and all of a sudden you're asking me to go through there? And so finally after what seemed like hours of this bickering, the guy does what Jesus would do and he takes himself through the depths, through the darkness, out the other side, maps the way so that he could come back and invite his friends to follow him to freedom. God's arms are open wide to the world. And because this reconciliation is a two-way street, the question is, will you run home to him? Will you follow the one who has gone before us through suffering, through death, into new life, extending his hand and saying, will you come with me? Will you live in God's kingdom right now to where not even death will separate you and what you experience now will continue on even greater when we see him face to face? But will you follow him now? Will we follow him to the cross and out the other side into new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross so that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your Holy Spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And now, as you leave this place and continue to follow Jesus into Holy Week, may you know the quiet strength of Christ, the humble power of God, and the pervasive light of the Spirit today and always. Amen. Go in peace.